Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm coming to you from Cheltenham in the UK, where I live and I teach at Westminster Theological Center. In this episode, I'm speaking with one of my former teachers, Mark Turnage. I had Mark uh, for a course on early Jewish literature at Jerusalem University College back in 99. And Mark was actually TAing for the course, but was already a very fascinating lecturer. And uh, as you'll hear in this episode, very knowledgeable. I used to record those lectures And when I got back to the U.S., I I had this little handheld tape recorder that recorded very poor audio. And when I got back to the U.S., I used to listen to those, And even though the the sound was horrendous, uh, because they were so fascinating to me. And it was actually actually that uh, semester abroad in Israel, and that course in particular, uh, that, that sparked me to pursue biblical studies, and the rest is history. So it was fun to return to the scene of of that vocational crime uh, to speak with Mark again. And when I recorded this, Mark was at El Araj, which is an archaeological site in the Galilee. And the um, possible location of Biblical Bethsaida, home of Peter and Andrew. And they're only in their third season uh, excavating, but already finding some pretty significant stuff. And, And even like from when I'm recording this till you hear it, They probably will have some more interesting finds that I don't know about yet. Um, So if you hear this episode and going on on an archaeological dig sounds interesting to you, this would be a really good one to consider. And it might come as a surprise that you don't need to be a professional to go on an archaeological dig. Anyone can do it. And as you'll hear in the episode, next next summer might be a really good year uh, to go, so they they are looking for volunteers. Um, I'll put info on that in the show notes, and um, and it would be a good opportunity to um, take up. Also, if you've been thinking for a while that you'd like to give us a review on iTunes as a way to say thank you, why not make today a review day? Great indeed will be your your reward in heaven. Okay, folks, here it is. Welcome to the OnScript Podcast. With me today is Mark Turnage. Mark is an author, biblical scholar, instructor, guide in Israel, and much, much more. Mark is the author of Windows into the Bible, Cultural and Historical Insights from the Bible for Modern Readers. And on a a personal note, Mark played a a really pivotal role for me when I studied at Jerusalem University College back in 99. Uh, Mark was one of my lecturers, and and his interest in early Judaism was infectious, and his extensive knowledge of early Jewish literature, um, in, in particular showing how that literature connected to the New Testament, um, helped spark in me an interest to study the Bible in its cultural and historical context. So, Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, and I know you're a, a busy man at the moment, and uh, do you want to paint a picture for our listeners of what it is that you're up to right now? Well, uh, we've just completed the first week of a four-week uh, excavation at a site in Israel on the Sea of Galilee 
called Hirvat El Araj. And uh, we've been digging there, just actually started today, our second uh, week. Got four weeks of digging. This is our third season of excavation here. So uh, that's kind of what we've been up to. Yeah, and before we get into what um, you think Tel El Araj might be, um, maybe it'd be good to just step back for a moment and and explain a little bit of how you ended up pursuing study of the Bible, what caught your interest, and um, you know, kind of how you ended up where you are in um, you know doing archaeology in the Bible today. Okay. Well, um, in my undergrad, I came to Israel for the first time. And uh, had always wanted to come here and see the land of the Bible firsthand. Uh, I also studied with a, a Hebrew professor who had lived here. And he showed me how issues of land and language and culture, historical setting, really help us to frame and understand what the Bible meant. And so in the course of my undergrad, I actually made three trips to Israel, uh, including a month-long study trip with this professor. And so then when it came time for applying to graduate school, this was the only place I wanted to come. And so came here, did my master's, completing my PhD here. And yeah, the rest, as they say, is history. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and what um, what was your kind of research focus in your MA and then your PhD? Uh, my MA was in ancient Judaism and the origins of Christianity. Um, my PhD is at Bar Ilan University and uh, in the Land of Israel Studies Department, specifically focusing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, and um, and then out of out of the, those studies, you, you publish your book, Windows into the Bible. And in that, you talk about reading the Bible in 4D. I think that's the term to use. Um, so what does that mean? Well, my, uh, one of my late professors, Anson Rainey, always spoke about the four dimensions of historical geography, um, which were spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual. And... What I have done with the Windows in the Bible book is I've taken basically that four-dimensional methodology that Professor Rainey talked about in terms of historical geography, but have applied it to how we read the Bible in general. And that's what I mean by like a four-dimensional approach where you're taking seriously spiritual or uh, spiritual setting in terms of the ancient spiritual world where you're taking seriously the cultural context, um, historical context, and then, of course, the spatial and physical setting in which the the biblical narrative takes place. And and so now, of course, you um, engage uh, with with those four dimensions with a lot of people coming over to Israel, many of them for the first time. So you you lead tours in the land of Israel. And as you bring people around to different locations in in Israel. What is it that most often surprises people or is kind of an epiphany for them as they trek around the land? Well, I think the, a couple of things. I think one is obviously when they start to realize the size as well as realizing that 
the Bible does reflect real places, real landforms, topography, um, and even how the flora and fauna of the land play a key role in in terms of the vocabulary, the imagery, uh, the metaphor of the Bible. Um, I think that's one one way. The other way, though, is I think a lot of people who come here, even for the first time, have an idea of what um, a tour is supposed to look like. But one of the things that's very important for me is that the land becomes kind of a doorway uh, to begin to engage the biblical text. And so it's not so much important to say, you know, go to the traditional sites and say this is churches built here to remember this event, but really to get people into the land and oftentimes go to off the beaten uh, track places, um, out of the way spots that either are maybe more accurate or even better reflect certain realities um, that illustrate uh, certain phenomena or ideas that we find in the Bible. And I think that that really opens their eyes a lot, is to see the Bible kind of, so to say, come to life through the through the physical reality of land. Yeah, and what's a maybe one or two examples of, um, you know, you mentioned flora and fauna, like maybe how that impacts our reading of the Bible or um, the the actual geography of a particular place influences the way we read a biblical passage. Do you have any examples of that? Sure. I mean, um, I think one of the great examples in terms of flora and fauna is what we find in um, the early chapters of the book of Jeremiah, uh, God asked Jeremiah, what is it you see? And Jeremiah says, I see, I see an uh, almond rod. And God says, yes. And I am diligently watching to uh, over my word to complete it. And many commentators notice that uh, there is a wordplay going on here uh, because the word for almond or almond rod, uh, almond branch in Hebrew is shaked. And the word for to diligently watch is shoked. So you hear kind of a certain alliteration there. But it goes deeper than that because the almond tree is the first tree that puts forth blossom um, in the spring. And in fact, the blossoming of the almond is the earliest sign that spring is on the way here in, here in Israel. But it's also the last tree that gives fruit. And so in this image where um, Jeremiah sees the almond rod, it, it's, it's in the sense, the, the diligently watching part of it is God saying to Jeremiah that in the same way that the almond puts forth its blossom first, but you have to wait for it to be the last of the fruit bearing trees, so also that which I have said and have promised will I will diligently watch over it and even though it may delay it will ultimately come to fruition so that's one one I example of the flora and fauna I think that you know in terms of looking at 
you know, physical topography or so forth. A, a lot of times it has to do with roadways and highways and, um, and, and, and understanding the strategic places of uh, certain cities and so forth. And, and that's really replete throughout the Bible. Uh, where we see those kinds of realities, um, you know, coming coming to light, so to say. Yeah, I, I can give an example of of how um, ig- ignorance of the flora and fauna plays out. When when I was there in the in the spring one time, I uh, I was really excited because I saw all these olives on trees, and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna. I'm going to take some of these olives and I'm going to put them in brine and have my own batch of olives from the land of Israel. So um, now do you, do you notice my misstep? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, you know, didn't realize that spring's not the time to, to yank those off the tree. Um, uh, no. And they tasted horrible. So um, anyway, that's my, that, that's my flora and fauna uh, wisdom for you. Um, so, one of the examples, um, going back to your book for the moment, um, it, one of the chapters that I really appreciated in your book was on the Pharisees. And and this is one of those um, cases where uh, a, a people group can kind of take on a life of its own in the church. And if you've, you know, if any of our listeners have sat in a church for long, you know that the Pharisees are are the bad guys uh, in many a sermon and, uh, and, and often to detrimental effect for, for Jewish-Christian relations. Um, so what is your challenge to Christians next time they want to portray Pharisees as a bunch of legalistic jerks trying to trap anyone who breaks just one law? I, I think that, um, well, I, I think the problems with such a characterization uh, like the demons that went into the pig are legion. And I, I think that it, this is an issue where we as readers of the New Testament have to become sensitive not only to the Jewish culture and cultural world of the first century, but it's a place where we have to realize that um, of the three main streams of Judaism and Jewish piety that we know from the first century, Jesus most closely aligns theologically and spiritually with that of the Pharisees. Um, just a couple of examples of that. Uh, the phrase that appears on the lips of Jesus more than any other in the Gospels is kingdom of heaven. But th- and this is a phrase that we only know uh, coming uh, out of the world of the Pharisees, the Jewish sages of Israel. Um, terms like repentance, the telling of story parables. All of these are things that are unique to the spiritual world um, of the sages of Israel and the Pharisees. And so if we're going to really try and understand Jesus and his message and his method of teaching, his hermeneutic, to understand um, how he... um, how he engaged even his contemporaries, we have to frame it really within the world of um, the, the the Jewish sages of Israel. And um, that requires us to also recognize a few very important details, I think. While the gospel writers do not have a problem with depicting Jesus and the Pharisees in in, in 
points of tension, I think it's very instructive to realize that in all four Gospels, when it comes time to hand Jesus over to Pilate, none of the Gospels ever mention that the Pharisees are part of the group that's handing Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. Moreover, when you look at the testimony of the book of Acts, um, the Pharisees are specifically mentioned in four instances. In two of those instances, they are actually members of the Jesus community. Um, and then in two other instances, they are coming to the defense of the followers of Jesus. And this actually bears up very nicely with what we find in Josephus when he speaks about the death of James, the brother of Jesus, who was executed by one of the chief priests, the grandson of Annas, uh, who we hear about uh, in in the Gospels. And um, Annas' grandson, like his grandfather, was a Sadducee. And upon the the illegal execution of James, it's the Pharisees that actually went to the uh, Roman governor of Syria, which oversaw uh, the land of Israel um, as well, and um, they protested. And it's the same kind of thing that we find in the book of Acts. And so I think that we have to develop not only uh, a reading of the New Testament that takes seriously kind of the cultural world and spiritual world, but also the historical realities that we find not only in the New Testament, but in contemporary uh, first century literature like Josephus uh, that uh, address the who are the, the Pharisees and what were they like and so forth. Hmm. Yeah, and Paul even uh, self-identifies as a Pharisee, not only in the past tense, but as a you know, present uh, identifier. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and another um, stereotype that you address in the book is, and this is part of a, an archaeological current that runs through your book, um, is is the common assumption that Galilee was a culturalist kind of backwater uh, area compared to Jerusalem, uh, especially. And and, you know, at least the regions that Jesus went to. And so you you have this image of Jesus going to peasants who were um, uneducated and that seeing kind of radical contrast to to Jerusalem. And so how has um, a look at archaeology, uh, um, in particular the archaeology of Galilee, challenged that perception of uh, this important biblical region? Well, I think that one of the things that's fascinating today is that we really have three sites within the Galilee and the Golan that um, provide us time capsules to the first century. Um, while sites like Nazareth and Capernaum um, have continuous uh, occupation um, over the centuries, so we it's hard to really touch first century in those sites. We have three sites in um, the villages of Magdala, um, Gamla, uh, and Yodfat. Um, all three were destroyed as part of the first Jewish revolt that begins in 66. And where Magdala has some continuing uh, settlement, Gamla and Yodfat were never rebuilt. So they give us these kind of microcosms or these time capsules 
of what first century life was like in the Galilee and the Golan. And one of the things that's interesting in the archaeology of these sites is we find several things. Number one, we find clear Jewish presence. Uh, we find evidence of Jewish ritual immersion baths, uh, stone vessels, which were uh, used by Jews because of issues of ritual purity. We, of course, hear this mentioned in John's Gospel with the miracle of the turning of water into wine. Um, you find Jewish coins. You find, you find the avoidance of pigs in terms of the diet and so forth. Uh, so we find these villages that are strongly Jewish. And of course, um, recently, within the last 10 years, at the excavations at Magdala, they found a first century synagogue. At the same time, we also r realize that the, um, the social classes in the Galilee are stratified. Um, evidence at Magdala, Gamla, Yodfa, all indicates uh, the presence of a very wealthy class um, with very nice frescoed and, and uh, mosaic floored homes. Um, it also indicates uh, that we find uh, individuals who owned uh, industrial kind of manufacturing, specifically of like olive oil and other products like this. And at the same time, we find a definite artisan class. Um, you know, we see even in a village like Yodfat, the archaeologists found, uh, very small, uh, scales and why you have such small scales is for the weighing out of precious jewels. Um, you find the evidence of textile, uh, industry at, like Yodfat, you find, um, at Gamla, you have industrial olive oil presses with Jewish ritual immersion baths next to them, indicating that the part, in part the olive oil that's being manufactured there is being sent to Jerusalem and to the temple. Uh, and so the people are taking pains to prepare it in a ritually pure manner. All of this tells us that what we see in, the, in terms of the Galilee in the first century is a region that is Jewish. Um, at the same time, it is not this kind of bucolic backwater. Um, it's interesting that Josephus, when he mentions poor people in the Galilee, he doesn't mention it in the villages. He mentions them in the cities like Tiberias and Sephoris. Um, and at the same time, in rabbinic sources, we find this common occurrence where you have a, a strong connection between um, the, the sages of Galilee with the sages of Jerusalem, where oftentimes they will agree together against the sages of Judea. Another thing that indicates the close connection between Jerusalem and um, the people in the Galilee, uh, well, actually a couple of things. One, of course, there was this uh, stone that they call the Magdala stone that was discovered in the synagogue in Magdala that has a depiction of the menorah, which was in the temple. And um, a friend of mine who uh, is an archaeologist here, his name's Moti Aviam, has actually suggested that all the iconography of the stone is tying in with the temple and things in the temple. So there's trying to show that the people in the synagogue at Magdala were trying to connect what they were doing with what was going on in the temple. But there's also um, the discovery throughout the Galilee in first century sites of what are 
typically called Herodian oil lamps. Uh, the technical name for these is knife-paired oil lamps. And when they've done petrographic analysis on the clay of these lamps, um, these specific style of lamps, all of them that are found in the Galilee, the clay for them comes from Jerusalem, indicating that the lamps were being manufactured, these specific lamps were being manufactured in Jerusalem, but yet were being brought probably by pilgrims who had gone uh, from the Galilee to Jerusalem, like what we read about with Jesus and his family in the Gospels. And they were wanting to bring with them back to their homes these kind of souvenirs. Um, and possibly the reason why they would choose oil lamps was because of the connection between the light of the temple, the menorah, and trying to bring a little bit of that back with them. But um, these lamps indicate that you have a, a pilgrimage culture between the Galilee and, and Jerusalem. So all of these things really that have been uh, uncovered uh, over the last 30 years indicate that what we have in the Galilee in the first century is a, is a very uh, religious Jewish community. At the same time, it is also um, a socially and economically stratified uh, culture as well. So we, we're not just dealing with peasants or, um, you know, these kind of uh, bucolic backwoodsmen. Um, but in fact, that you actually have wealth and, and, and people of even of artisan class, like really what you would find or think about in terms of like hmm. carpenters like Joseph and Jesus are, are described as in the Gospels. Yeah, and, and I guess that also suggests that it's unfair to pose a, a simplistic opposition between Galilee and Jerusalem because they're wanting to maintain some kind of spiritual connection there. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and so I guess two follow-on questions from that. I'm not sure they address it exactly, but, um, you know, when we think about Jesus' upbringing, um, does any of that shed light on the background from which he might have come? You know, is, are we to imagine a wealthier family, poorer family? Um, and then my related question was, you know, we also have an image sometimes in the church, at least, of poor, uneducated fishermen, or at least uneducated fishermen. Does it influence either of those pictures? I think, I think it does. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, we know because of the, the sacrifice that Joseph and Mary bring um, for Jesus that, that, that it is a poor person's sacrifice. But one of the problems in the modern world is we oftentimes equate poverty with lack of education. And that's not, in, that's not necessarily true in the ancient world. And one of the things um, I remember when I was a, a student studying here, um, one of my professors, uh, uh, the late Hannah Safrai, she made a comment to me once, and I've never forgotten it. She said, how is it that you Christians are so enamored with Paul? Uh, she said, when you compare Paul to his contemporaries, he was average in his education at best. But she said, Jesus is without parallel. Now, she wasn't saying this as a, as a person of faith. She was saying this as a critical scholar. And the reality is, is that if we understand the world of ancient Judaism and we look at how Jesus speaks and he teaches and he communicates, Jesus had a formal education 
And actually, I think that it is fairly safe to even say his formal education was superior to that of Paul's. And which is um, both in terms of the sophistication of his hermeneutic, um, both in terms of the way in which Jesus has this way of speaking that on the one hand seems very simplistic, but always there's this undercurrent that goes underneath in which he is tying into the highest levels of Jewish hermeneutic as well as um, argument about specific things. Um, And so on the one hand, he would speak in a way that the common person could understand him and, and get the essence of his message. But there was always this, this kind of subtext that was lurking in there in which he is very much on the cutting edge of, uh, trends and ideas that were developing within Judaism in the first century. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's, I hadn't thought about this before, but you have a, an inverse situation with Paul, whereas Jesus, it's simple on the surface and there's a depth uh, level of sophistication and, and complexity. With Paul, you have all the complexity uh, on the surface and you hope that there's underneath that is a simple <laughs> picture. Right, right. <laughs> like, you just hope that there's a, uh, that somehow we can, we can uh, derive from that some, some simple uh, image to bring away. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, l- let's talk about the, where you're digging right now because this is it's really interesting things are happening uh to be three to be into your third season and already be um you know having regular communication with national geographic and all sorts of other uh places of interest including us uh, i must say um first of all talk about tell el raj and and why you ended up wanting to dig there, um, what prompted this excavation, and then what might make it significant? Well, um, the the name of the site in Arabic is Hirbet el-Araj, and in Hebrew it's called Beit Habek. And it's a site that um, is known from the 19th century because there was... Um, a, an Ottoman tax official by the which was called the Beck, hence the name Beta Beck, the House of the Beck. Uh, that was his house was there, and in the 19th century, as European and uh, American travelers, adventurers, scholars began to rediscover and explore. Um, you know, the, the Holy land. One of the things that they were having to do was to try and identify where certain things were, um, in the Bible. Now, again, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Nazareth, none of those were forgotten because there had been continuous civilization there. Other places had been forgotten. For example, a famous one is Capernaum. And so when you had these um, explorers like Edward Robinson and Lawrence Oliphant and others coming through, they would ask the locals, you know, what do you call this place and what do you call that place? And so, for example, 
um, the site of Capernaum uh, was known as Tel Hum. And so you kind of can hear Capernaum, Hum, there, there's a similarity there. And so people begin to suggest, this was even before any kind of archaeological work had been done, that Tel Hum was Capernaum. That's just one example. Well, there were... In the 19th century, there were already suggestions, two suggestions as to where was the location of um, a site we read about in the New Testament, in the Gospels, as well as in the Jewish historian Josephus. And that site is known as Beit Saida. Um, according to the Gospels, this is the home of Peter and Andrew. Um, and so there was two sites suggested. One is a site by the name of Et Tel. And the other is Herbert de la Raj. And 21 years ago, as a MA student, I was taking a course in archaeology. And so I decided to write my seminar paper on this question of the site identification of Beit Saida. And so I was exploring the, the historical witnesses, the ancient historical witnesses, um, and looking at the challenges of these two sites. Now, the problem was, at the time, El Araj had never been excavated. Um, there had been a few surveys. There had been some discovery of some architectural uh, pieces there. But as far as like really being excavated seriously, it had not happened. However, there had been uh, an excavation that now has been going on at Atel for almost 30 years. And several of the problems with Atel are the fact that, first of all, it's about uh, two kilometers away from the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And we know that Beit Said is supposed to be a fishing village. Um, the next thing is that because it was a fishing village where the excavators of Etel said that their harbor was, is about six to seven meters higher than the other first century harbors around the lake. Hmm. Um, and at the so same... It's a, it's a kind of high dive. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, to, to put it like this, if, 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 if their harbor is where the lake was, Capernaum is underwater. Um, at the same time, we know from Josephus that in the first century, Herod Philip, the son of Herod the Great, elevates Beit Saida uh, and, and strengthens it, making it a polis and so forth. Yeah, and, do, uh, just briefly, do you want to say what that means, elevating it to a polis? We don't want to, to be honest with you, we really don't know what that means. And, and that text in Josephus is, is, is rather interesting. It, you know, does it mean that he builds walls around the, the village? Does it mean that he builds a cardo in there? Does it mean that he has a theater? Like a, in uh, it, it really is not clear what exactly Josephus is referring to in this. But the problem is that at Tell, they have a brilliant Iron Age site. Probably they have the capital of Geshur. Um, and you'll remember that uh, one of David's wives was a Geshurite princess. In fact, her son was Absalom, that she bore David. Um, so they have a really great Iron Age site. They have some Hellenistic remains. But it, in the Roman period, when according to the historical sources, we should be seeing 
you know, kind of a renaissance of the site or at least a growth of the site, their archaeological remains drop off. So having investigated this as a, you know, in an MA seminar paper, I had always said, look, if I ever get the opportunity, I want to do what I can to start an excavation of El Arage to see if this is the place. In the interim, one of my professors uh, in my MA program, Steve Notley, had written a, a number of articles on uh, this question and had explored it in an atlas that he wrote with Anson Rainey called The Sacred Bridge. And about six, seven years ago, I was in a position and I was doing a lot of work with uh, the Canaret College, which is located here on the Sea of Galilee. And... Um, one of the professors there is Moti Aviam, who is a leading authority in Galilean archaeology in the Hellenistic and Roman periods. And so I just started talking to Moti, what would it take for us to excavate El Raj and so forth? He said, we need volunteers and money. Exactly. So a few years ago, uh, got the money together and also got some students and we did a shovel testing survey which basically was we opened up about 12 to 14 squares, 12 by 12 squares, and then uh, dug down about 30 centimeters into the soil and then sifted the, that soil and see, to see what we found. We found pottery from the Hellenistic period. We found pottery from the Roman period, Byzantine period. Then we had kind of a gap, Crusader, Mamluk, Ottoman, um, and so forth. 1948. We, yep. We found mosaic. <laughs> we found mosaic tessera as well. And so based upon that survey, as well as a survey that was done at El Araj in the 90s, we felt we had significant cause to launch the first mm. season, season of excavation, which we did three years ago. Um, in our first season, we found a what initially was identified as a crusader sugar-making factory. And we found um, some Byzantine walls. Um, in our second season, we continued to uncover the Byzantine structure. And we began to find, both in the first and second season, these gilded tessera, mosaic tiles, that were gilded in gold, and some of them were even glass, which are indicative of a wall mosaic. Um, which is suggestive of a church. Now we have a pilgrim account by um, a man by the name of Willibald that came through the area in the 8th century. And he mentions that at Bethsaida there was a large church built over the home of Peter and Andrew. Um, and we think possibly that what we're finding with um, these gilded tessera and so forth um, is a reflection of, of, of the church that Willibald mentioned. At the end of last season, we had create, we had gone through, we had pulled up the floor of the, the Byzantine floor and gone two probes down. Um, in one probe, we found um, at, at the period where we were finding early Roman pottery, um, so from the first, second centuries, uh, of the common era, we found um, a mosaic floor with uh, a meander pattern on it. 
We also found uh, roofing tiles as well as um, what were called what are called tubula. These are terracotta pipes that lined um, the hot room of a bathhouse. So we now know that we have in the early Roman period we have a bathhouse um, at our site, which. You're not going to have a bathhouse at a place of, like, say, a Roman camp or just a small village. That This is indicative of something that is urban. At the same time, we the second probe, we also found um, a coin uh, of the Emperor Nero, which, again, tells us that we have settlement here in the first century. Um so that was at the end of last year, and that's what created a lot of the interest from National Geographic and, and kind of the world media, because we feel like at this time, while we still have to put a question mark on, on this, we can say that our site is the best candidate for Batesida, which when Herod Philip builds it up, he renames it Julius. And so we think that we have the best candidate for that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as you know, uh, Mark, um, it's it's risky business trying to demonstrate something from the Bible. So what are some of the checks and balances that, that you as a team and excavators put in place to, you know, um, keep keep the study objective and to allow yourselves to be persuaded otherwise and so on? Well, I think that you have to let the evidence take you where where it will. Um, I will say this: uh, having you know worked with archaeologists and, and 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 done excavations, archaeologists would love for you to believe that archaeology is a hard science, but it's a it's a pretty soft science. Stones have to be interpreted, just like a text does, and. Um, but the the thing that we're trying to do is the through the whole dig we're trying to do it in a scientific way um like even what we did last year with by pulling up the byzantine floor and then digging our probes underneath the byzantine floor it created a controlled environment where we were able to basically get a profile of our site from the byzantine period down to the early Roman period. And while we're not running around saying we definitely have Batesida, what we're saying is we have right now the best candidate. Obviously, if we find an inscription or a, a signpost that says, welcome to Batesida, then you know that would be awesome. But we're what we're trying to do is, it, it, because it's an interesting... It's an interesting question that not only does archaeology help us, but even the use of kind of historical geography and reading what the ancient sources are saying about this site. I mean, Batesida was a very important site. It's in the regions of Batesida, in the wilderness regions of Batesida, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. We have the healing of the blind man in Mark's gospel in Batesida. Like I said... Peter and Andrew come from Bethsaida. Um, it's it's a it's a prominent place actually in Jesus's Galilean ministry uh, here around the lake. So 
while on the one hand, um, things are enticing, I think that what we consistently say is right now what we have is the best candidate uh, for the side of bait side um, only more digging will will be able to reveal that thus far this season we are doing more work at, at kind of the Byzantine layer we're getting ready even tomorrow we're going to start going down in some other areas of the site trying to get down into that Roman uh, level we have found a piece of marble that is either part of the chancellery screen that separated um, the main nave of the church from uh, where uh, the priest uh, um, blessed the Eucharist and so forth. We've either it's either that or it's an actual altar from the church that we found. So we're pretty confident that we've got a church here now. Uh, we found a number of coins. Um, some glass pieces, uh, and, and, and on and on. And so, um, like I said, we just finished our first week, but, um, after that first week, things are pretty, are, are positive, but we're just now, we've got ourselves in a place where we can, you know, continue further to explore that early Roman layer and Mm. see more of what we have there. So there's a good chance if uh, anyone wants to join the excavation next season, they could be uh, doing some uh, digging in in Roman area, uh, Roman era, um, uh, Bethsaida or whatever this site is. Yeah, cool. Um, I just want to circle around as we conclude um, back to the the spiritual dimension of the the text. You know that fourth dimension that you talk about, and how have you seen? study of in the land uh, of uh, ancient Israel and uh, the world of Jesus to be spiritually transformative for people coming to uh, Israel? In some ways, that's one of the most challenging things for readers of the Bible, because especially people of faith who are Bible readers, because we come to the Bible with our spiritual lenses and our spiritual worldview on it. But as we're able to hear the spiritual world of the Bible and understand it with the Bible, the words of Jesus, within their spiritual context, I think that what it does is it it can be challenging to us. It can renew and refresh our own faith. Um, It can energize oftentimes, whether it's our Bible reading or our own personal devotion, it helps us to hear Jesus more clearly and actually see him as a more present, positive voice in the world that we live in today. Yeah, well, that's really helpful, Mark. And um, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know that you've been digging all day and it's late for you there in Israel. So um, on behalf of all of us at OnScript and our listeners, we really appreciate you uh, talking to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. 
If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate. 